Okay, we, we're actually in 1 John. Uh, John wrote this as a letter that was going to be, uh, it's going to be circulated around the churches in Asia Minor. And one of those churches was the church at Ephesus. We get our book Ephesians. But uh, John was quite possibly one of the pastors of that church at some point in time. And so it's, it's been written to those churches in Asia Minor because uh, there had been some things that were happening. First of all, you have to know that this book, 1 John, was written 10 years after the book John, which was the first one, which was with the Gospels. Uh, it, this first John is written 10 years after that one was written, and by now, John's a much older man, and so these churches in Asia Minor have second and third generation Christians, but there had been some falsehoods that have crept into the church, some false philosophies, and in, in, in fact, this is where Gnosticism really began to take hold, was in those early Christian churches, and and yet even the Gnostic philosophy was divided into two types of Gnosticism. So let me explain, because First John is tackling Gnosticism. And it seems a little bit weird, but let me explain it real quick. This Gnostic belief or philosophy was broken down in two types of philosophies. One set of Gnostics believed that Jesus was merely an apparition, a, a, a ghost. He wasn't actually fully... Uh, fully man, he was fully God, fully spirit, and so he wasn't fully man. And so there was a group of Gnostics that believed that and were teaching that. On the other side, there was another group of Gnostics that were on the other side of that and said, no, Jesus was clearly man, and he was only man. So there was this division, even amongst this philosophy, that either Jesus was just a spirit or that Jesus was just a man. And so First John has written, to uh, correct all of those wrong philosophies. But 1 John was also written to these churches because in their second and third generation uh, Christianity, they'd become pretty passive in their worship. They'd become pretty passive in how they were living, whether or not they were living according to the word. This passiveness had crept in to their Christian faith. And so he challenges them to strengthen their Christian faith and to to be genuine in their fellowship. You're going to see that word fellowship pop up, especially today. But there's another reason that he wrote 1 John, and we're going to look at this book over the next several weeks. And one of the keys is found in verse 4 of chapter 1. So just look at this real quick. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, and we are writing these things. Why are you writing these things? And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. One of the reasons John was writing this is to, so that they would be completely and, and, and utterly satisfied in the person and work and the nature and work and the ministry of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That his joy would be complete. Psalm 1611 says it like this, you make known to me the path of life. Now that's really important because we're going to see some doctrinal truth and we're going to see some practical application out of that doctrinal foundational truth. You make known to me the path of life, how I ought to live. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In order for us as Christ followers to really sense or be satisfied in the fullness of joy, we have to recognize that much of this life that you and I are living is like chasing after the wind. It's just simply like chasing after the wind. In fact, uh, in essence, what John is doing with 1 John is he's doing exactly what the writer of Hebrews chastised Christians for in, in Hebrews. And it's this, that by now you ought to know the basic principles of the oracles of God. So what John is doing is he's going back to this bottom shelf, low level, foundational things that you ought to believe and it ought to pour out of your life practically. So that's what John is doing with this letter that he's writing. He's going to give us just some real basic principles of the oracles of God. And today we're going to look at three of them out of this text. We're going through chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me give them to you. Uh, three basic principles that we're going to look at. It matters. The first principle, the basic oracles of God, the first principle is this. It matters who Jesus is. It matters who Jesus is. Just this apparition, just this man, it matters who Jesus is. Secondly, it matters what you and I do with sin. It matters what you and I do with sin. And third, it matters what Jesus does with sin. It matters what Jesus does with sin. Now, we have nine values here at, at PBC, and our sixth value is we tremble before God's word. We recognize that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We recognize that it is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, may be made perfect and complete. We recognize that every word of God proves truer is flawless. And uh, so... On a regular basis here as a church, we just go verse by verse or section by section and look at what God's word says and then apply it to our lives. And that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks. We're just going to go down section by section, look at what God's word says, and we're going to see the basic foundational truths and ask the question, how do I apply this to my life? But we have another very important uh, value. Value number two is that we talk with God first. And so let's do that before we get into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, uh, reveal to us the things that we need to know. Uh, reveal to us the things that are hidden, that are in darkness and need to be exposed by the light, the light of your word and by your light. I pray that we would see the basic doctrinal truths here this morning, the basic tenets, the basic oracles of you, and ask the question, how do I apply this to my life? What does this mean? What does this mean for my life? I'm so thankful for this book and the fact that it is found within the inspired writings of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to the basic principles of the oracles of God, let's look at the first one. It matters who Jesus is. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, uh, Paul, uh, John is writing, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, 
and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. One of the key descriptors that John uses for Jesus throughout his writing is the word, word, right? Word. We remember that because John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And he loves to use that phrase. He loves to use that word for God. And so here he uses that, the word the word of life. John's setting the table uh, for what is true, but um, it's still an issue yet today that there are philosophies and ideas that come and go about Jesus, and, and, and so many cultures and so many generations have a trouble with Jesus. They don't have so much trouble with God. Yes, there is a God, but they have trouble with Jesus being God, and so John is going to set the table for us to look at this. He's obliterating the very first Gnostic argument that Jesus is merely an apparition. You might look at this text and go, wow, he's really going overboard. That which we have heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Do you see what he's doing here? We can't sit in our generation and think about this. We have to put ourselves where they're at, and there's this philosophy that this Jesus was merely a ghost, an apparition, and and John is saying, no, 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 no. I've seen him, I've heard him, and I've touched him. I've touched him. Jesus was fully man, but he doesn't leave it there because John was an eyewitness. He was a disciple. He was called the the son of thunder. And in John, the book that he wrote, the first John, that's actually the first John, that John that he wrote, he actually called it, he gave himself a name. He calls himself the beloved disciple. I'd like to write that about myself. (laughs) Jared, the beloved disciple of Jesus. I'll write that in my own book. (laughs) A little interesting that he named himself that. He says that we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Then we get to verse 2. And verse 2 is a, it's set apart by these hyphens. This is a parenthetical statement. It's an explanation of the word of life that he's put before that. So take a close look at verse 2. The life, the word of life, the life was made manifest. There's an important word. You're going to see that a few times. The the word of life, he was made manifest. What, what What is John saying here? John is saying that Jesus, whom I have seen and heard and touched, became manifest. He there was an incarnation. He's talking about the birth of Christ and the life of Christ all in one word. That life, that word of life became manifest, became manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. We've, we've seen it, we've testified, we proclaim to it. John's given us something very, very basic here, that when we see what Jesus does in someone else's life or does in my life, we see it. We should naturally testify to it and proclaim what God is. This is called your story. This is God's story in you. At the time when I was five and a half years old and my cousin passes away unexpectedly by drowning, I come to this place in my life where I have to ask myself the question, do I know where I would go when I die? 
What's this relationship with Jesus look like? And Mrs. Niederhoff, my German Sunday school teacher, shares the gospel clearly. And I go home that day and I sit on my green comforter in my race car wallpapered bedroom. And I give my life to Jesus. That which we have seen and heard, we testify to it. It should be the natural outpouring of the fact that Jesus has changed me. He's been made manifest even in my life that we would just naturally want to proclaim that. Proclaim what? And proclaim to you the eternal life. Now this is interesting. or Hopefully it will be interesting to you. The eternal life. The article is there in front of the phrase eternal life. In every single translation except King James uses that instead of the. And the New Living Translation says Jesus is eternal life. Or he is eternal life. Every other translation puts the word the there because the article is in the original. And that makes it very important. And here's why. Because John is not talking about quantity. John, when he uses the word eternal life, isn't talking about living forever. He isn't talking about Buzz Lightyear's phrase, to infinity and beyond. He's not talking about that when he's using the word eternal life here. He's talking about quality. He's telling you and he's telling me that when this manifest Jesus came, and we've seen what he has done, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it, we are living from a place of eternal life. You are living your eternal life now. Now, and that ought to make a difference. Basic principle of the oracle of God is Jesus is who he says he is, and because of that, he has granted to me eternal life that is to be lived at the moment I give my life to him. At the moment that you give your life to him. Why? Why? To testify, to proclaim to it this eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That we have seen and heard and proclaimed. Do you think he's trying to get his point across? I had a professor that said if I say it three times it's on the exam. Okay, so here it is. He's, he's reiterating again the basic principle. That which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, we do this. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us and also have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ is what he goes on to say. Now, to, to me, that seemed a little bit peculiar and interesting that because Jesus was made manifest, he came as God and was born as a man. His incarnation has been made manifest. We've seen it. We testify it. We proclaim to it. And then John says the first thing that gives us is fellowship with one another. Wouldn't it be important to flip that verse and say, which gives us fellowship with God and fellowship with Christ and then fellowship with one another? He's given us this basic principle of the oracle of God is that fellowship isn't just something we do, it's who we are. There's a vertical and horizontal relationship taking place because of our faith in Jesus Christ. 
We have fellowship with each other. The moment you become a Christ follower in the body of Christ, you and I, we automatically fellowship together. It's not something that we conjure up. It's not something that we make up. It's not something that we go to, some potluck meal with a somewhere Bible study and then maybe a prayer at the end of it. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is the glue, the unity in the body of Christ. It's who we are. Uh, yeah, Pastor Jared, I, I got a lot of friends and I got a lot of family. I don't really need church, fellowship. Uh, I, I don't really need to go to a women's retreat. That's just girl, girly stuff. I, I don't need to go to a guy's night out and have some fellowship time with guys. I, I, got, I got enough family and friends. And if that's been an excuse or an idea that's roamed around in your head, you're missing the point. We're not trying to make or create fellowship. The reason that we spend time together is because we already have fellowship together. It's an automatic. It's a horizontal relationship that you and I have as well as the vertical relationship that we have. Why? Verse four, we've already said it. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete, our, satisf- our genuine satisfaction, our deep contentment, supernatural strength coming from joy. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Just in the first four verses, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have the incarnation, we have the manifestation of Christ, we have this idea of being in a place of eternal life already, fully God, fully man, and all John is doing is giving us a basic principles of the oracle of God. It matters. It matters who Jesus is. He is King. He is Redeemer. He is the Savior of the world, not just in title, but in personage. It matters who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who Jesus is to me. He can be whatever you want to me. It doesn't matter who Jesus is to me. It matters who Jesus is. And in that is the gift of eternal life that he gives. I like what John Piper says. He says, getting to God is the end of the quest. Getting to God is the end of the quest. Not seeing those who have died and gone before me. Not seeing my loved ones. Not getting to that perfect fishing hole in the sky. Not getting to the most beautiful golf course. I know you love golf. Not getting to the most beautiful golf courses, the places of perfection, not eating the best food. You can remember my grandfather's funeral and someone stuck a golf club in his casket so that, you know, he could, because he's probably playing golf in heaven, right? The end of the quest isn't that. If it's any of those things higher than the quest being, I get to see God, then we're missing it. We're missing what that fellowship is. Somehow we think that this is the most important thing on this earth, is the most important thing in heaven. The most important thing in heaven is Jesus is there. That's the quest. 
He goes on to say this. It's not boredom when you get there. I have no idea what we're going to do there. It's not boredom when you get there. And by the way, there might be fishing and there might be golf. I have no idea. But it's not what Revelation says. It's not what 1 Corinthians 15 says. It says God is there. It's not boredom when you get there. It would be, that would be blasphemy. He says it's joy. It is joy when you get there. Jesus is our joy. He's fully God. He's fully man. And he's the key holder to all things eternal. It matters who Jesus is. And when it comes to the basic principles of the oracles of God, not only does it matter who Jesus is, it matters what you and I do with sin. It matters what you and I do with sin. Verse five, this is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is where it gets really basic. As a Christian, what do you do and what do I do with sin? This is a tough question. Because I think if we're honest, and we should be honest, it should be the character of the integrity of a person that walks blameless before the Lord. If we're honest, some of us have a tendency at times, me included, to uh, minimize our sin or to rationalize it as if it's not that bad or to uh, refine it a little bit or maybe even to love it, become callous to it, don't take it seriously even become apathetic towards sin. That's the tendency that we may have. And John gives these churches warning the way that I'm giving you a warning today and he's calling them out. He's just calling them out. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That, that phrase, walk in darkness, means live your life in darkness. There's a consistent, habitual sinning that takes place there. So as we walk in darkness. So if we claim to have closeness with God, but defy, defy his will, defy his plan, uh, if we defy him and live contrary to the character of God, then we are, by the scriptural standpoint, we are walking in, walking in darkness. I think some of the three, three of the hardest words for a Christian to say are these three words. I have sinned. I think they're the hardest words for a Christian because we want to rationalize our sin. We want to downplay our sin. We don't want to think that it's a real serious thing. And we have this tendency to be afraid then to just stand out and say, I have sinned. Listen, I want you, I want you to be in on this little bitty secret, okay? This is how Jesus responds when you and I say, I have sinned. This is what Jesus does. I know. And you're forgiven. Sometimes we live in this place of despair and guilt when it comes to our sin, and yet Jesus is saying, I know, and you are forgiven. 
John says that God is light. He's talking about the moral perfection of God. What he's, he's not saying that God is uh, merely the possessor of light, for God is the light. He's saying God is the originator of light. All things morally perfect, holy, altogether separate and different. In fact, that phrase, in him is no darkness, in him there's no darkness at all, literally says there is no darkness in him, emphatically, none. None. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but if you're taking notes, you have time maybe with your connection group, you can look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, because it says that, that in these moments, we shouldn't keep those things in the dark, our sin in the dark, but we should bring them to light. We should expose them. Because when we keep things hidden and, and closed up and inside and we don't expose them, David talks about this in the Psalms, that his inner self, his bones wasted away when he tried to cover his sin, when he tried to hide his sin, when he tried to rationalize his sin, when he tried to defend his sin, his insides quite literally wasted away. His bones were breaking because of that sin. And Ephesians tells us to bring it into the light, but someone needs to hear this this morning. So listen closely. Sin, yes, sin affects our fellowship with God but not our adoption by God. Sin absolutely affects our fellowship with God, which is a harsh and hard thing, but it does not affect our adoption by God. These verses contain uh, six conditional statements. Three of them are negative or, or, or uh, uh, recognizes falsehood, and three of them are positive or recognize the truth. Uh, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9, oh, excuse me, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 are the negative falsehoods or the negative statements. So just let's read those real quick. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. Now, each one of these is kind of a stair step downward. Okay, so there's, there's six, verse eight. Now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't even in us. So, so if, if we lie, we don't practice the truth. Now we're deceiving ourselves. The truth isn't even in us. And then verse 10, the downward spiral continues. If we say, we have not sinned. If I stood up here and said, I have, I have not sinned. I no longer sin. If we say we have not sinned, we, we not only lie, we make Jesus out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I would not sin against you. So what is it that cleanses us from our sin? The text answers that. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another. There it is again. We have fellowship with one another. And something cleanses us from all sin. What is it? What cleanses us from all sin? You're reading it. What does it say? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Man, highlight that in your Bibles. When you're having conversations with others and they're earning their way to heaven, they're striving to be better, they're trying to balance the scales to be between good and evil, this is the clarity that it brings, that our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Not tradition, not ritual, not heritage, not sacraments, not knowledge, not ceremonies, not even experiences. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sin. Verse 9 tells us it matters what you do and what I do with sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, verse 9, what do we do with sin? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just simply confess. That word confess means to agree with God, to say the same thing. And confession should always be a natural response of a Christian, but it often isn't, right? Again, if we're going to be honest, that's not our first response to our sin, but it should be the natural response to our sin, even though it isn't. It wasn't in the Garden of Eden. They ran, they hid, they were embarrassed. But the word sin simply means to miss the mark, to simply miss the mark. And what John is saying here is that unconfessed sin invalidates your fellowship with God. Sin invalidates your fellowship with God. And because we have fellowship with God, it often invalidates your relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But verse 9 didn't end there. If we confess our sins, God is both faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Is that, that, that's good news, right? We, we, would, we, all, we would all say that's good news, right? That, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. <laughs> How horrible would it be if you and I were to confess our sins and God goes, I don't think so. I'm angry. I'm a God full of wrath and justice. You're an unholy person. I'm gonna pour out my wrath on you just because I want to. Says that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. This, this is so, so deep and we'll miss it trying to skim across the top. What John is saying here is the very character of God would come into question if we don't believe he will faithfully forgive me of my sins. You're questioning the character of God if you don't believe that. And that's good news. So when it comes to the basic principles of the oracles of God, it matters who Jesus is, and it matters what you and I do with our sin. Don't hide it. Don't rationalize it. Don't become apathetic to it. Don't play with it. Don't mess with it. Don't toy with it. Don't live in it. Confess it. Confess it because it matters what you and I do with sin. But even more so, it matters what Jesus does with sin. It matters what Jesus does with sin. 
chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, John. I don't know why I keep saying Paul. It's clearly John. John says this, my little children. That's what I love about scripture. It, it, even though we may have a tendency to kind of gloss over certain words or certain phrases, the phrase, my little children, is in here on purpose. This shows just how much John loves the church. Enough to speak this really hard truth about sin and to create a very clear understanding about who Jesus is and then to say from a term of endearment, my little loved ones. See, he's older now. He's sitting back and writing this letter and he's saying, I've had some experiences in this life. I want to keep you from hurt and from harm and I want to keep you from this kind of passive Christianity that's out there that doesn't really make it, in fact, they make light of sin like it's not any big deal. And I want to cure you from that and I love you enough to tell you the hard things. I think it's important that we see that there so that when someone is up here sharing the hard things with you, it's as if I were saying to you, my little children, it's a term of endearment that I love you so much I don't want to see you suffer and wallow in sin. Just as God doesn't want to see me suffer and wallow in sin. So most Bible scholars agree that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 are actually the conclusion of the first chapter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I have a quote from Martin Luther on the screen. It's a longer one, but I want you to hear this. If someone errs and sins, he should not add the sin of despair After sin, the devil always alarms the heart, makes us uh, tremble, for he hurls a person into sin in order that he may finally force him into despair. On the other hand, he lets some live smugly without temptation in order that they may think and believe that they are holy. Okay, those are those that have refined their sin or made little of it. Uh, That they may think and believe that they are holy, and this is his cunning. He wants to make saints sinners and sinners saints. But look at the text. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, here comes this beautiful statement in this letter. You and I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. A name of power, a title of power. That word advocate is a really interesting word. You know that word advocate is actually the word paraclete or parakletos in the Greek language. John is using the same word that he uses in John, the first gospel, John. John 14 in chapter 16 when he says, I will send to you another comforter or another helper, the Holy Spirit. It's the same exact word here. He says that when you stand before God confessing your sin, you don't stand there on your own. You have an advocate. You have a defense attorney. 
You have a helper standing right next to you. And this helper, this defense attorney, if you were in a court of law and the judge, God, is sitting on the throne and you're there as a defendant having to share the things that you've done and confess those things and agree with God that there's sin, that you have this magnificent and significant attorney with this unique power and authority that he has in the room because he has a relationship with God. He is the son of God and he has a relationship with me. He is my Lord and Savior and he stands there between God and me and says, I am Jared's advocate. I am his Righteous. That's the title that they give him. I am Jared's rightness. I can't stand before God on my own in my own righteousness because Romans chapter 3 says that all my right standing before God is nothing more than filthy rags. Jesus imputes, what a great word. Jesus imputes his righteousness in front of me. And he says to God the Father, I have paid the price for Jared and for that sin. And I'm standing in defense of that. You have. An advocate, don't despair in your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. What a title. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he goes on, he says this, which is actually the qualifier to Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's kind of the explanation of his title. Verse two is the explanation of his title. Verse two says, he... Now, in original language of the New Testament, Greek, that word he is emphatic. It would be, should be in bold in our Bibles or should be circled. Here's what he's saying. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he, he is the propitiation for our sins. Not for us only, but also for the sins of the world. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the perfect payment. It's not just his blood poured out for me. It's him. It's Jesus himself. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for my sin. It is his blood that cleanses me from all unrighteousness. But I dare say in the last 20 to 30 years, we've tried to signify or, or, or make this significant moment of accepting Christ or, 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 or um, desiring for God to be, for Jesus to be Lord and Savior of my life, to say this, he is my personal Savior, true, but he is, at greater extent, the Savior of the world, everyone. Now, there's some interesting argument of some theologians that he's talking about when he's saying that he's the savior of the world, he's the savior of the elect of the world, those who are going to already accept. I don't, I don't see that in the text. Here's what I see. He is the savior of the world. Think of the most heinous person ever to be alive in the history of the world and Jesus died for that person. Think of the best person you know in the history of the world, and Jesus died for that person. This is a massive proclamation that John is making. He's not just my personal savior. He's the savior of anyone who would come to him. Let's close our Bibles this morning. It matters who Jesus is, it absolutely matters what you and I do with sin. 
And it unequivocally matters what Jesus has done with my sin and with your sin. Now listen carefully for just a couple of moments, please. We're, we're closing this out to a time of response. If we discount the power of the carnage of sin that lays everything to waste, if, if, if we're just quick to discount it, sin in our life as really no big deal, then you and I clearly don't understand the power of sin. The fact that you think you can keep it in the darkness, that it's not that big of a deal, that I can keep it hidden and it's not going to hurt anyone, take it from the life of David, it'll eat you alive from the inside out. So if we discount the power of sin, we're missing it. But the flip side of that is also true. If we discount the power of an advocate standing in our defense, you and I are abdicating why Jesus Christ came to this world for you and for me. We're just saying it, that's, he couldn't possibly forgive me. He couldn't possibly save me from my sin. I think we could have a tendency to hit that pendulum either way, to think very, very little of our sin or to think of our sin so great that, there, that it couldn't be forgiven by a faithful and just God. And we know that neither one of those are true, right? Sin is serious and powerful, but Jesus gave us a way out by his blood to confess it and to agree with him. God help us if we minimize our sin and God help us if we maximize it past our great defender and Savior Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this. This will be up on the screen. Might be one of my favorite pastors. There can be no peace between you and Christ while there is still peace between you and sin. So if you minimize sin, this morning in response time would be a great time to confess that sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. This is the awesomeness of God to be able to confess our sin and get in right fellowship with him. But if you're sitting here weighed down and in despair by your sin and thinking that there's no way that a holy and just and righteous God wants you, his son, Jesus, stands to your defense and says, you are mine. All it takes is for you to repent of your sin and say, I want you, Jesus, to be Lord and Savior of my life. You might be in between those somewhere today.